0: Welcome to The Climate Fix. My name is Asim. On this show, we shine a spotlight on nonprofits, academics, corporations, startups, anyone working on a solution to the climate problem. In this episode, recorded on the 27th of March 2020, I spoke with Paul Gamble, CEO and co-founder of Nori, a carbon removal marketplace. In his past, he was a software product manager at Deloitte Digital and started the world's first networking group for carbon removal in 2015. I first discovered Paul and Nori when I read his article on Medium titled, How to Save the Planet and Make Climate Change Just Go Away Using Blockchain and Cryptocurrency. As someone who spends his life trying to explain complex things simply, I really appreciated that article. It helped me to understand some of the complexities and challenges of existing carbon offsetting solutions and at the same time explaining how he and the rest of Nori believe their solution can just make climate change go away. I had a wonderful time speaking to Paul. We covered a lot in a short space. He's very knowledgeable and doesn't waste time getting to the point. However, I did have a bit of a stuffy nose on the day so my pronunciation might be difficult to understand sometimes but I do believe I got my point across. Let's dive straight in. So hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. What's the climate problem that you're solving?
1: Thanks for having me, Asim. Well, I think climate change is actually far more straightforward than most people think, uh, which is to say that the problem is there are too many greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And I think the solution is to pull those gases
0: back out and store them safely in the earth. That's a pretty simple and an important (laughs) problem to solve. Yeah. So tell me, how is Nori helping to solve this problem?
1: So Nori is a marketplace for carbon removal from the atmosphere. Um, This came out of a recognition. uh, I started investigating this back in 2015, trying to understand what were the different ways that we could uh, draw down carbon and sequester it. And what I found was that we already have all of the tools and the processes and technologies that we need in order to draw down massive, massive amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But they're not happening at any scale. So what Nori is addressing is creating that financial incentive that we need in order to uh, make sure that people can get paid for drawing down carbon in a verifiable and credible way.
0: Yeah, and that's excellent. And I saw a comment if it was on your website or some on one of the articles. You describe yourself as the second generation of carbon offsets or the next generation of carbon offsets. <laughs> So how is it different?
1: Well, um, in the in the past, uh, the approaches that people have taken uh, designed carbon markets where um, they're both voluntary and compliance markets. And in general, you have what are called registries, which are uh, bodies that approve and uh, provide standards for measuring and verifying carbon offsets. Now, I, I want to distinguish that carbon offsets almost always, that term means to avoid future emissions. So this could be like building renewable energy or a dairy digester or or something that is reducing the amount of emissions that are going to be emitted in the future. Whereas carbon removal is about removing past emissions that are already up in the air. And The reason that that distinction matters is because even if we were able to magically and miraculously turn off all of our emissions around the world uh, unilaterally tomorrow, we're still screwed. There's still way too much carbon already up in the air. We need to remove over one trillion tons of CO2 from the atmosphere. So there needs to be some emphasis put on that. Now, these markets that have uh, happened in the past, uh, they've been around for like 15, 20 years or so and uh, typically the way it works is someone does a project and they get it verified and then they're issued carbon credits and those carbon credits each one represents one ton of co2 avoided and usually the project developer is not necessarily a company that's used to doing sales and that sort of thing so they almost always will work through a broker and that broker will then resell the carbon credits and then maybe someone else resells the carbon credits And these credits get sold many, many times uh, as they go through their life cycle until someone maybe eventually chooses to retire. And I'm using air quotes around that. Retirement of carbon credits means to pull it out of circulation and say that it's no longer available for sale. Well, I think it's kind of crazy that the carbon can be resold many, many times over Uh, Not only because that enables large-scale fraud and manipulation to happen, which certainly does happen, and there have been some very high-profile cases of this, but I think it's just crazy that you have all this money being spent that is not resulting in a net new ton of CO2 either avoided or removed. So we work differently by enforcing immediate retirement. That's our big distinguishing factor.
0: And from what I understood from one of your articles, which I will mention later on in the show notes, the it's sold repeatedly, but it can also be reported by a company in one of those intermediate stages before being actually retired as their carbon removal solution or strategy.
1: Yeah, it's it's unfortunate that just this is a very opaque industry that um, most lay people don't really have any insight into. And part of the reason is because the, um, the, the people who are involved in putting on these markets just haven't put as much emphasis on transparency, which is a really, really core value that Nori has. Um, so if a large multinational company uh, chooses to buy carbon credits from whatever different, and there are all sorts of different types of carbon credits and that sort of thing, but just let's say that they buy some, well, they, they can hold them on their balance sheet. That's an asset that they have that they can then resell if they need to. But in the meantime, they can say that they've bought all these carbon credits. And so they can do whatever PR press. And no one's really going to hold them account to account for that. Um, and that's also what enables the fraud and manipulation. Because you can have parties uh, doing swaps with each other back and forth, uh, marking to market at a much higher uh, cost on their balance sheet, while they're in actuality only paying each other like pennies on the dollar kind of thing.
0: So they're saying these carbon offsets I have are worth $100 per, and then that's kind of making it look like they have more money in their books than they really have.
1: Yeah, and it also makes it look like there's more trading volume. And if you're a commodities trader, one of the signals you look for is how much volume there is on this asset being traded. And So if they're passing the assets back and forth between each other, and they're saying that it's trading at $10, but in actuality, it's $1, well, then
0: that volume is a lie. Have you detected much of that happening in the markets or is it known to happen quite a lot?
1: It's known to happen but it's really really difficult to uh, show it happening. The effects are really most often realized in the ways that past carbon markets that have been set up have crashed uh, for uh, you can look at most examples of carbon markets and emissions markets in the past and within a short period of time it turns out that almost always the highest price uh, paid for one of these underlying assets is in the earliest days. And that's that's why there's a sort of death spiral uh, for some of these markets that they've attempted in the past. And, and we think that really the core problem here is that the carbon asset is the thing that they end up trading. and not that commodity trading is bad. it's actually really, really good. and we want that as well. And you get benefits from that like, uh, increased liquidity and reduced price volatility. It just gives people the, the ability to better forecast how much this is going to cost, how much it's going to be worth, should they invest in this now, that sort of thing. So, that, that's, those are beneficial things, but we shouldn't be trading the carbon over and over again. So, Nori has a unique model where we've separated out the carbon asset itself from the mechanism that gets traded, the medium of exchange. So in our market, uh, a Nori token, uh, where one token is always pegged to one ton of CO2, is the method that's used to pay for the carbon. And that's the asset that gets traded. So it's sort of like a gift card or a coupon for a ton of CO2.
0: And a Nori token can be sold again, again, again?
1: Yes. Yeah, the the Nori token is uh, um, multi-use. It's not retired. But when the... life cycle is a buyer pays a supplier, uh, one token and they receive one ton of CO2 and then that ton of CO2 is immediately retired and that buyer owns it forever. Now the supplier has the token and then they can go resell that into the exchange markets and turn that into cash. And then the token continues to circulate around that way.
0: So as a buyer, if I wanted to, let's say offset something, I would then get one of these, I think it's called a Nori carbon removal nrt token and when that is mine so that is my evidence that i have sequestered yes. one ton of carbon yes and then that turns into a nori token for the seller the person who sold it to me Then they can sell it on another market who's buying these nori tokens and why are they buying them
1: we there's a there are individual consumers who are buying these um for altruistic reasons um they don't want to be they, they want to like remove the emissions from a, a flight that they took or, or something else as part of their lifestyle. And then there are corporations, uh, corporations that are choosing to offset their emissions um, because their customers, their shareholders or employees are pushing them to do so. There are companies that are doing it for compliance reasons. Um, for instance, the airlines are about to be regulated next year under the Corsia program where all international flights will have to offset or remove their emissions that go beyond today's baseline. Um, And then there are, and this is I think the most interesting and what we're trying to build for is, there are the companies that want to offer carbon removal to their customers as a part of their product and their platform. So you can think of what Nori is doing as building the infrastructure that makes an API for carbon removal possible. So, uh, say Uber or Lyft, like you take an Uber ride, and at the end of the ride, um, maybe a sponsor pays for removing the emissions from your ride in real time, and they're just paying for verified carbon removal through Nori.
0: So, I see, because if I want to go right now and, and offset some carbon, I will then have to go and look at various different programs, and they're all different, Yeah, and there's not a lot of fungibility, I'd say, between them. But with the nori token it's completely fungible exactly
1: yeah we we think that the only thing that matters is that the carbon comes out and then it stays out it doesn't matter how it happened or where it happened and so we're trying to really commoditize the carbon itself and and what you just described is reality like if you were to go into one of these platforms that offers like consumer level offsets you might see like a dozen different projects you have no idea which one is more valuable they'll be priced differently uh, they might have different impacts. They might have different what are called co-benefits for the people in the local community where that project is happening. But like as a buyer, n- those things shouldn't uh, shouldn't matter. And often uh, there, it's, there's just that like behavioral economics problem of if, if you have like 36 brands of peanut butter, you're probably less likely to buy peanut butter than you are to figure one out and choose it. So we're trying to make this incredibly simple. Uh, so that's how we make it more scalable.
0: that is one of the questions i get asked fairly often from people which is like how do i do it? what do i do where do i go i've heard of all these problems which program do i use and i usually suggest a couple of the main offsetting verification platforms but yeah they don't particularly care about that they just want to make sure that if they're going to spend some money some carbon is going to get removed exactly exactly so the way you're doing it is also quite interesting. So your initial approach right now, it seems, is you're working with soil sequestration, I think is the correct term, is it? That's right. And you've even written somewhere that essentially soil sequestration all by itself can help us reach a two-degree goal. Um, I'd have to think about the numbers in terms
1: of how it relates to two degrees. You know what's, what's interesting is I, I think that the temperature targets uh, are a fool's game. And we shouldn't be using those. And instead, the targets that we should be shooting for are what is the global CO2 concentration? So today it's around 415 parts per million, and uh, most scientists believe 350 is probably the max safe level. And if we really wanted to do the job right, we would take it back to 300. So any other number like doesn't really matter, because uh, it's one. Some line I say sometimes is like. Trying to find an average global temperature is like trying to find an average global phone number. Like it does, you can do it, but it doesn't really tell you a whole lot. Um, I think that the the carbon metric is the one that we should be pursuing.
0: And that's a really good point as well, because temperature is also driven by other factors as well yeah. as just carbon. And then you can get confused in getting embroiled in that conversation about well, what is actually driving temperature increases, whereas a carbon, I love that. That's fantastic. Yeah, great point there.
1: But you, so you had asked me about, uh, can soil help with that? And I, other numbers that I can give you are that, um, the way that soil sequestration works is farmers who are growing commodity crops, corn, wheat, soy, rice, whatever, um, can uh, choose to adopt practices that are typically called regenerative agriculture practices. So this might be like no-till or reduced tilling, uh, planting cover
0: crops, um, tilling is the process of turning soil over is it or yeah plowing
1: um so so what happens in conventional ag and it's funny that we call it conventional this is really only the case since world war ii where uh you will plow the um the field at the beginning of the, the season because you want to have like a perfectly uniform soil for planting and then you'll run your combine through and you'll you'll, you'll plant and Uh, And then you'll you'll grow your crops, and as the crops are in the ground, they're putting roots down, and those roots are feeding nutrients um, to microbes and fungi in the soil. And then at the end of the season, you harvest your crop, and uh, you are no longer providing nutrients. You have to use a lot of fertilizer in the process, and that number is increasing every year, and so it takes more and more fertilizer to produce the same amount of yields. Um, so what's happening is uh, by doing these conventional practices, soil has been eroding. The ability to grow food has been uh, decreasing and it's becoming more and more difficult, more and more expensive to do. So for farmers, what what is happening is this regenerative movement is saying instead of uh, plowing the land in where you're turning over the soil and exposing all of that organic matter to the air, You should try to leave it pretty still and directly inject seeds and do a minimal amount of tillage to get them in. And then you should use less fertilizer. And uh, once you get to the end of the growing season, you should plant cover crops. So that's like low lying, like, uh, beans or alfalfa or something like that. And what that's doing is that keeps roots in the ground and that continues to provide nutrients to the organic matter because that organic matter, those microbes and that fungi, that is the carbon.
0: Oh. So that's
1: so that's how we that that's how we get this process going. And uh, croplands, when they convert to these practices, can, on average, uh, rough rule of thumb is sequester about one ton of CO two per acre per year. So that's that's significant. That's a lot because that means that uh, American croplands can sequester between half a billion to a billion tons of CO two every year. And globally, that number might be between five and ten billion. Wow. So that's, that's an enormous amount of carbon sequestration. So, uh, soil sequestration is by far the most affordable method of carbon removal, and it's the most scalable today. And we benefit from the fact that the industry is already trying to move in this direction
0: because it's just better for their soil. Yeah. So it's a win-win. So it's better for the soil Yeah. and it's better for the environment. It would right. seem that this is a no brainer, right?
1: You would think so. Um, some of the challenges that exist today are the all the big food companies want farmers to do these practices, but if they're going to incentivize them in some way, they need to be able to verifiably prove that they're doing it. And you could, go, uh, you could go two different routes of doing that. So like the way organic certification works is, is uh, practice-based. So you have to be doing these practices for at least three years, and that has to be verified. Um, but for, for our purposes, what we're doing is outcome-based. So we are partnering with a platform in the U.S. called Comet Farm, which is funded by the USDA. And Comet Farm is a platform that takes in different models and uh, information about your particular farm and the practices that you're doing. And then can come back with a number that says this is how much carbon you're putting in the ground relative to what would have happened if you had kept going with conventional practices.
0: Oh, Okay. So that's a way of verifying the outcome. And actually associating that with an actual number, a tonnage of carbon as well. That's right. Amazing. So let's talk for a little bit about Nori itself. So what stage is Nori at as an organization?
1: We've been around for about two and a half years. Uh, We have 11 people on our team. We're headquartered in Seattle, Washington. And uh, we, we went through Techstars sustainability accelerator last fall. And as we were going through that, that was when we officially launched with our first proof of concept. So we spent about a year and a half developing our methodology for soil uh, sequestration and measurement and verification with that. And since we launched, we've secured some um, pretty big partnerships with large agricultural companies uh, to bring in more farmers. We have a pipeline of over half a million acres of committed croplands to to join uh, this market. And right now we're at the stage where we are trying to scale this up. Um, we are constrained more by operational uh, challenges, just in terms of we have to get a lot of data from the farmers and that, ha- that has to be processed through the platform. So it's just like, you know, a normal engineering resource problem that we put enough resources on it and it gets solved. Um, so that's the stage we're at right now is um, trying to really scale up on the supply side so that we have more inventory available for buyers.
0: Oh, fantastic. So you've actually got people willing to use their farmland and to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. And it's an engineering problem right now, you say? Yeah. Or like an engineering yeah. operations. Right. It's a great place to be, I think. It sounds like you just need to grind away at that and you'll get to where you want to be, right? That's right. Yeah. So, and this is maybe a question where you may or may not want to answer, so feel free sure. to cut it out. But who are the customers or partners that you need to get from where you are now to a scaling point where you're making real impact, real meaningful impact on the planet?
1: Well, because we're a two-sided marketplace, that answer is going to encompass both sides of that. So on the supply side, um, what we found to be most effective is uh, sort of top-down partnership relationships where we uh, get to know and develop a relationship and collaborate with large groups so uh, we have partnerships with granular which is a uh, farm management software system uh, with Locus ag which is a, a large seed company and um and, and others um, pacific Northwest seed association uh, association these are like uh farm groups where they have lots of farmers uh who are participating in them and so the leadership of these organizations can then go to their customers their partners their suppliers or collaborators whoever say, look, we have an opportunity now to work directly with Nori uh, so that you can start uh, adopting these practices and monetizing uh, what you're doing. Um, so that's that's how we scale up. And so scaling up just means continuing to develop new partnerships and collaborations with ever larger uh, companies. And many, the largest food companies in the world are interested in this sort of thing. So it's just a matter of, kind of proving this out to them. On the demand side, um, it is. We really want to demonstrate and get to the point where we have a very easy API. Like we, we sometimes call ourselves like Stripe for Carbon Removal, and Stripe really changed the game when it came to credit card payments. And so they have an easy SDK. You just drop in a little code to your uh, e-commerce site, and you're able to, to take credit card payments. We want this to be the same thing. So for instance, we could build a Shopify plugin that any Shopify merchant could incorporate so that carbon removal required to deliver the products to the customer's door could be taken care of automatically. Um, so we, we wanted to develop more relationships with large scale uh, um, organizations like that that have massive reach and impact in terms of uh, how mi- the volume of carbon removal demand that might be. Like I, I really think that the future of this is not necessarily in like Fortune 500 companies buying offsets, but rather in microtransactions.
0: Mm, interesting. Wow, that's a much, broader vision than I thought Nori had in the first place. So so are you building or do you already have a software developer kit or an API or something along those lines? Is that that's something on the roadmap in the future?
1: It's it's on the roadmap. Um, we've, we've preliminarily sketched out some stuff on how to do that. But the bigger challenge at the moment is more on the supply side and making that really easy right. for farmers to get enrolled. So once we get that going, then we move on to the making it easy on the demand side.
0: Oh, brilliant. Oh, fantastic. That's really exciting. As an engineer, I have to say, I'm really excited about that. Yes. (laughs) Um, I can't wait for that to come out now. I'll I'll be be hacking away in a couple of solutions there. So talking about kind of your roadmap, like what will you be doing in the coming 18 months, kind of what does that look for you as an organization?
1: Well, our target is to have uh, 1 million tons of CO2 verified uh, and removed by the end of the year um, available for sale um, cumulatively. And, and then getting to the point where we're scaling the solutions for that API integration. That's, that's really the, the, the key. So kind of everything that I just described, that's really our next 12 to 18 months.
0: That's, months. that's fantastic. So now I'd love to kind of ask you about kind of how you started this firm and especially what inspired you to start Nori. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about Jenny.
1: Well, I, my background is in uh, software engineering and development and, um, Uh, And then project management. And I was working as a product manager for Deloitte Digital, um, building mobile apps for big brands. And I left that in 2015. And I read a, um, a magazine article about how climate scientists were becoming very depressed because no one was listening to them. And I got very curious around, is there a way to like, who's, who's working on solving this? Like, I keep reading things about how this is going to become less bad, how to mitigate this and adapt to it. But like, can we just make it go away? Is that possible? Um, so I started a meetup group, a networking group here in Seattle to meet other people who were interested in this. And I really just wanted to find co-founders. I didn't know what business model was out there, but I wanted to develop one. So I spent a couple of years running this group. Um, And through that, met pretty much every other group in the world that was doing the same thing. Uh, There were relatively few at the time, and uh, we were mostly educating, reading white papers and articles about these different methods of carbon removal. And then in 2017, uh, my first co-founder, Christoph Jospe, and I, um, who had known each other for a little while, um, he had been working at the Center for Negative Carbon Emissions at Arizona State University, which happens to be my alma mater. set this up a couple years after I graduated. So it was a really weird coincidence. And um, we just decided to jump in and uh, run down this business model. Um, I'd been interested in Bitcoin and blockchain since 2011, when I learned about it. And uh, I'd been paying attention to that growing. And it just, everything kind of clicked and made sense in in early 2017. They're like, okay, now we have the tools that can transparently and verifiably prove this stuff while also creating the financial incentive. So let's build a market for this. So we, we put that team together uh, and then we entered a, uh, a hackathon competition and we won and that was enough for us to start the
0: company and get going. Oh, fantastic. Is there anything you wish you'd known when you first started out that you now know that would have helped you on this journey? Um, one of the uh,
1: challenges has been more on the the blockchain and cryptocurrency side. So I talked about this token, this method of payment, and it, it's absolutely the right solution. Like this, this is only possible because we're combining two very different industries together uh, to create something novel. Um, one of the things that we did last fall was decide. Okay, we had been going to companies and saying, "Hey, you should buy these tokens at a discount from us, and you can use them to pay farmers later." And, no one was really understanding it and eventually it just clicked for us that we just need to sell these for cash and let's start with cash and then we'll integrate the tokens into it the token is important because it's a price discovery mechanism in the future but for now the farmer can set his own price and we'll we'll go from there so i think being more willing to experiment with um, a slow stage rollout of the final technology that we want to get to think if we had adopted that faster, we'd be a little bit further along than where we are today. Um, So that's, that's probably the biggest lesson we've learned so far in this.
0: Oh, yeah. I go back to your point. I think one of my quotes that I love, not a quote from me, but it's creativity is connecting the seemingly unconnected. And so what you did was you took two areas, which are not people wouldn't normally have thought to connect and you connected them. And, And that's a definition of creativity for me. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So what you're doing is hard. And I think one of the things I've noticed, but everything in the climate space is hard. It's hard emotionally, and it's, it's just yeah. dealing with so many people on all sides who are perhaps not as supportive as they could be. So how do you stay motivated? You've been in this space for quite a long time, it sounds like. I mean, since 2015, you've been looking at this stuff. It's now 2020 for our listeners. So what are some ways you stay motivated or inspired throughout that time?
1: Well, I'm motivated by the fact that I see large-scale cultural change happening. Um, to me in 2015, it seemed obvious that the that not only were there going to be uh, many people interested in working on this in the future, but that, like, I still think it's obvious today. Like, there is no future scenario in which the world uh, does not remove massive amounts of carbon from the air. Of course, that's going to happen. It's just a matter of how and when. So I've been really encouraged ever since uh, late 2018, when the IPCC report came out uh, with kind of a new update on the way things were going in the atmosphere. We've seen large-scale cultural change, uh, big corporations making enormous commitments financially and otherwise to um, support carbon sequestration, uh, policymakers talking about it in a way that had never happened before, um, big cultural movements like what Greta Thunberg has inspired, as well as like the Extinction Rebellion or the Sunrise Movement, or and And all these groups have their own different um uh, motivations and even ideologies to them and uh, but and not it's not necessarily like those movements themselves. it's just that writ large we're seeing lots more people talking about this. A lot more people care about this, and uh, that trend is going to continue because there's there's no way it doesn't it's gonna keep getting warmer, so of course people are going to keep talking about this, yeah. So yeah. I, I find that motivating that we're, you know, we were a little ahead of the curve and we're riding that wave now. So our timing is perfect.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I describe it as a wave. I do see it as a broad movement that's happening, not even necessarily led by particular people. Mm-hmm. It's just, I don't know how to describe it. It says everybody just decided one day that this is important. And I also agree with you. Yes, we are going to have to deal with this eventually. And for me. The world is just going to get a lot worse, and then it's going to get better. And and what we're trying to do now is we're just trying to make it not get really, really bad before it will get better. And that's what it's all about for me.
1: Yeah, and and complex systems have a a really interesting and unique way of uh, um, changing on a dime. Uh, And it doesn't seem obvious until it happens, and then it's incredibly obvious that it was going to happen. So um, we just want to push that a little bit faster ourselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the power of hindsight. So, just a last question: Is there anything inspirational, perhaps something you've read recently, uh, a personal listeners that follow, a thought you had, something you want to leave with the audience, something to help them inspire them?
1: Well, I, you know, I when I started this uh, journey, I I have an engineering background. The things that I was gravitating to where what are the cool like industrial and engineering type solutions for this like what kind of technology can we build so direct air capture was always really fascinating to me and still is but it's, it's very expensive and is not really scalable today if you had asked me two years ago if I thought that I would be working in agriculture today I would have laughed I just definitely would not have predicted that and what I have found incredibly inspiring is just getting to know farmers and working with these people who are so close to the land And, um, agriculture moves at the speed of trust, as they say. And that means that we literally like get to know, uh, our suppliers by sitting down at their kitchen table and, uh, and spending time with them face to face. Um, I, I love every opportunity that I get to go do a farm visit and farm tour. Um, these people, uh, work harder than anyone I've ever seen before. And they're so proud of. Uh, what they produce, and um, there's just—I don't know—there's just like something innate in all of us, I think, about wanting to be a little bit closer to the land. It's maybe just like an yeah. evolutionary thing. Um, so, so that's what—that's what I find inspiring is uh, getting to work with people who are really curating the land and carbon farming now, um, and they're—they're they're really great people to work with, and I, I'm enjoying that quite a bit.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a great point. That's a fantastic point. And When I think of the land also, it's an act of creation. That's yeah. what's happening all the time. Things are growing. They're creating. They're coming out the earth for thousands and thousands of years. We used to think that was a magical process. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that is really inspiring now that I think about it. In fact, we're spending the weekend at the Hussein household digging out the back garden. We're going to be planting loads of seeds. Oh, and nice. tomatoes and things like that so yeah to really get to get back to nature and yeah it's, it's very fulfilling thank you so much paul it's a really really fascinating conversation hearing a lot more about nori and the great work that you're doing over there thank you asim uh, that was fun you've been listening to asim Hussein on the climate fix if you like what you heard please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast application it really does help information about this episode including all the links that we mentioned can be found on our website theclimatefix.com if you want to message me you can find me on twitter as jawache or you can email me at hello at theclimatefix.com if you want each new episode neatly packaged together with the show notes and sent to your inbox weekly then subscribe to our newsletter which you can again find on theclimatefix.com till next time